Have you heard about the AI Bible? It lets you interview actual Bible characters, virtually, of course. But just how biblical is the AI Bible? Well, one pastor got some pretty crazy answers talking with the AI Bible. So how should Christians respond? Coming up, we'll speak with culture expert Kirby Anderson. And in honor of the Jewish calendar, Charlie Dyer's devotional helps us better understand Yom Kippur. That's all ahead on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Hey, if you're new to the program, our host is a guy who loves the Lord, loves the Word, and loves the nation of Israel. I'm John Geiger, always glad to be hanging out with you. And it's that time of year when the biblical fall feasts, the holy days are upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people and how they play a role in God's plan for the future and why they matter for us as believers. Yeah, that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feasts. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. To sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. And now let's take a look at current events from the Middle East region. Israel's New Year, year 5784 on their calendar, is now officially one week old. So what are some of Israel's milestones and markers as the country's odometer rolled over onto the new year? You know, well, for starters, the global Jewish population hit 15.7 million. That's an increase of 100,000 over last year. And 46% of all Jews now live in Israel. That's a total of 7.2 million. Now, the numbers can get confusing at this point because the population for the country of Israel also reached 9.8 million at the start of the new year. Now, here's how that all works together. Israel as a country has 7.2 million Jews, 2.1 million Arabs, and just over half a million others. So 73% of the population of Israel is Jewish and 21% are Arab. The country is expected to reach 10 million by next year at this time. It's no surprise, but this new year also began with the U.S. still having the second largest Jewish population in the world with 6.3 million Jews here. In addition to the population, Israel is also starting the new year about to set another somewhat unusual record, the country's largest indoor sukkah or booth for the upcoming Feast of Tabernacles. The Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Jerusalem is building a 4,300-square-foot sukkah located on their lobby floor under their glass ceiling that can be opened or closed depending on the weather. The entire area is designed to look like an ancient vineyard. It'll meet all the requirements of a kosher sukkah, but with all the comforts you'd expect of a luxury hotel like the Waldorf Astoria. Now, problem? Don't expect to find a last-minute bargain rate there. All 226 rooms are already booked, and if you have to ask the price... You can't afford it anyway. <laughs> well, one of the more unusual stories to appear in the mainstream media at the start of the new year was an article asking the question, where is the Ark of the Covenant? What exactly did that article say? And where is the biblical Ark of the Covenant? You know, the article actually took me by surprise. The, the title hinted at the possible answer. It said, is the biblical Ark of the Covenant hidden in an Ethiopian church? And while the author danced around the question, uh, the article concluded with a Jewish prophecy that the Ark would be revealed near the coming of the Messiah. 
Uh, let me start, though, by saying the ark being referred to is the ark of the covenant. It was the one made by Moses in the wilderness, which is the one that was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in Solomon's temple. Now, the main theory discussed in the article is the one that suggests the ark was taken from the temple just after the time of Solomon by Menelik, who, according to tradition, was Solomon's son by the Queen of Sheba. Now, according to this theory, the ark was taken to Aksum in Ethiopia, where it remains till this day in an Ethiopian church. Now, the story also mentions some other theories. One rabbi believed it remained hidden under the temple. Another believed the ark was taken to Babylon and destroyed. A more fanciful theory, it's found in Second Maccabees, is that it was taken from the temple by Jeremiah and hidden in a cave on Mount Nebo. And, of course, maybe the most popular theory from Raiders of the Lost Ark is that it's hidden in a warehouse in Washington, D.C. Now, the whole story is an example of why we need to start with what the Bible actually says, not with some rather bizarre traditions. Second Chronicles 35.3 says Josiah, the last good king of Judah, told the priests, put the sacred ark in the temple that Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, built. It's not to be carried about on your shoulders. Now, we're not told why they were carrying it around. It might have been to protect it during the time of wicked King Manasseh. But whatever the reason, the Bible says it was still in Judah and ultimately back in Solomon's temple around 720 B.C., so it wasn't taken to Ethiopia because it's still in Jerusalem over 200 years after the time of Solomon and Menelik. And Jeremiah didn't take it because he was persona non grata in the temple area. At one point, he was arrested trying to leave Jerusalem. So how could he have spirited it away? Ezekiel 10 to 11 described the day the glory of the Lord left the temple and Jerusalem. It was September 17, 592 BC. And by the way, that's exactly 2,614 years ago as of this past Sunday. Well, once God's Shekinah glory left, the ark was nothing more than a gold-covered box. So I think the one rabbi was correct. The ark was likely carried off to Babylon and eventually destroyed. And if we have any doubts about it being found again, well, Jeremiah 3.16 settles that issue. In talking about Israel's future restoration, he says, in those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, Men will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It'll never enter their minds or be remembered. It won't be missed, nor will another be made. In short, the original Ark of the Covenant is gone. And according to Jeremiah 3.16, there won't be another. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, host of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current events based in the Middle East this week. Iran continues to spar with the West over its nuclear program. The West issued a warning to Iran over unexplained nuclear material, and Iran responded by barring a third of U.N. inspectors from accessing nuclear sites. What's behind this latest rise in tension? Ultimately, it's the Iranians who are causing the problems. They previously abandoned the limits they'd agreed to on the amount of uranium to be enriched. They did that to put pressure on the West and the U.S. Uh, instead of caving in, the West decided that sanctions that were set to expire October 18 as part of the original agreement will now remain in place because of Iran's continued noncompliance. And that's when Iran responded by barring a third of the inspectors from overseeing its nuclear site. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency called Iran's decision another step in the wrong direction. So what's going to happen next? Well, there's some concern that the U.S.'s desire to improve relations with Iran is causing us to not respond as forcefully as we should to their actions. That's why we had the swap with the prisoners just this past week, and Iran ended up getting $6 billion that had been frozen. 
Now, Israel's watching closely to see how the West does respond. They don't want to unilaterally attack Iran's nuclear program, but they've said that's still an option if Iran can't be contained in another way. Now, this is a story, John, we're just going to have to keep monitoring in the weeks and months ahead. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Remember that song from Fiddler on the Roof? Well, it could also be the title for a new technology from Amazing Israel. Tell us about the artificial intelligence program developed at the Technion that's pairing together drugs to fight cancer and other diseases. Now, this is a medical advance that's worth singing about. Uh, the researchers have long known that combination therapy, you know, the practice of combining two or more medicines, can be highly effective in treating cancer. But that process can be hit and miss as scientists experiment with different drug combinations, trying to find matches that are helpful. This new artificial intelligence tool has come up with a way to greatly speed up that process. The program first scans all published papers and journal articles on existing cancer treatments, gathering information that allows it to predict pairs of drugs that will work together. But the program also predicts the pairs of drugs that are able to be chemically assembled into combined nanoparticles. Now, so far, this program has discovered 1,985 possible nanomedicine drug combinations to treat 70 different types of cancer. Combining pairs of drugs with nanomedicine allows doctors to target cancer cells more precisely, using smaller doses that are less toxic and with fewer side effects. This new research has shown, both in computerized models and in live experiments, that the drug pairs being identified are effective and that the nanotherapy is able to deliver the drugs to the tumor and release them there. Imagine using artificial intelligence to identify pairs of drugs that can be combined with nanotherapy to more effectively treat cancer with fewer side effects. We can all be thankful for this leap forward from the scientists at the Technion in amazing Israel. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Well, you've heard about the AI Bible, right? It lets you interview actual Bible characters virtually. But just how biblical is that AI Bible? Well, one pastor asked some questions of the AI Bible, got some pretty crazy answers. We'll share with you his experience and culture expert Kirby Answers reply in a conversation up next here on The Land and the Book. By the way, if it's been a while since you've been to the website, we welcome you there. It's thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. The AI Bible, next. You've heard of the AI Bible, right? It's the one where you can ask questions of Bible characters and actually interact with them. It all sounds great, but one pastor gave it a spin and was given some very suspicious answers. That's when we knew we needed to get in touch with technology and culture expert Kirby Anderson. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. We'll connect with today's guest after this insight on sharing the love of Christ more effectively with your Jewish friend. So there you are developing this friendship with your Jewish friend and you want to have a conversation about Jesus and you suddenly ask yourself, why are most Jewish people not drawn to Christianity? I mean, it seems like more should be than are. Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah joins us. What's the answer to that? John, I remember once in Brooklyn, an Orthodox rabbi asked me, why are you part of such a hateful religion? Hmm. Well, he said that because history is filled with the horrors that Jewish people associate with Christianity, sadly. 
We're not asking Jews to become Gentiles or change religions. We are asking our Jewish friends to consider God's gracious gift of a Savior, the Jewish Messiah. Okay, Wes, what's the best way, though, to encourage them to consider Yeshua? Well, demonstrate the reality that our faith in Yeshua makes in our daily life, provoking those observing to desire what we have. I also think it's good to say, Lord, how can I best show your love to, and then the name of the person, Mm -hmm. and respond in obedience to the Spirit's leading, and then stand against anti-Semitism. That's right, and we encourage that regularly here on The Land and the Book. Good checking in with Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah. Kirby Anderson is the president of Probe Ministries, based in Dallas. He's the host of Point of View radio talk show and is the author of 16 books. His commentaries and features are heard regularly on Moody Radio and many other outlets. His editorials have appeared in the Dallas Morning News, the Miami Herald, the San Jose Mercury, and the Houston Post. Kirby also serves as a visiting professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and other schools. We're glad to be able to tap into his expertise today. Hey, thanks for joining us on The Land and the Book, Kirby. John, great to be with you. Artificial intelligence, it's kind of the new issue, and we're going to be talking about it today. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's zoom out for a moment with a bird's-eye view of the national conversation we're having on AI. For those who are not so technically inclined, let's define what AI is and maybe what it's not. Well, the term originally came out in the 1950s to try to explain that you would eventually have computers that could be doing things that were done by people. And so, of course, over time, we've had computers being a little more effective. Uh, Robotics is a good example and all sorts of technical things that can be done that are repetitive and a sense of freed up human beings. But the real goal was to eventually get to a point where computers would be able to think Now, that is a question open for a great deal of debate, but there are now different kinds of computer systems. A lot of your listeners probably are familiar with ChatGPT, which actually pull together so much data that then you get uh, what is oftentimes called generative AI, or the effect is these computers start at least putting a lot of information together, and as a result can actually provide you with a a very coherent variety of things. It could be sometimes these computers are actually writing code for other computers. Sometimes they're writing a law review. Sometimes they're creating various poems or articles, or as we'll be talking about, even the idea of an AI Bible. But again, let's recognize we're still talking about a machine. We're not talking about something created in God's image. We're not talking about something with a soul, but it certainly has the ability to pull together lots and lots of information. And as a result, that's one of the reasons why people today are saying, well, maybe we should pay attention to what's going into the system, because it obviously affects what comes out of the system. Well, obviously, we've been tinkering with actually using AI for years now. And the term, as you say, goes back to the 50s. But why only in the last year has this erupted into what it has? What's the tipping point here? Well, part of it has to do with what I mentioned just a minute ago, this idea of generative AI, because you now have these ideas 
through what's called OpenAI, which is an AI firm in San Francisco, originally founded by Elon Musk, who I'm sure all of the listeners would know. And I mentioned ChatGBT. You might say, well, what does that stand for? Well, it's Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And so there has been at least an argument that there's been a breakthrough. Now, you've had some people, John, that have suggested that now it even has the ability to think or maybe reflect on what it is actually producing. But there has been a couple of jumps, and one of the most significant have happened within the last year or two. And so now people are using things like this chat GBT to, as I said, write things or create things. And uh, that uh, is so much more powerful that they've actually said that it could pass the LSAT. It could actually write a book, or write a poem, uh, write a very important set of letters, and of course, even write the Bible. And so in some <laughs> respects, that's why you've seen this uh, emphasis on artificial intelligence, because there have been some significant breakthroughs within the last couple of years. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, joined today by Kirby Anderson, president of Probe Ministries, based in Dallas. So how should Christians view this issue? Is there even such a thing as a Christian position on AI, Kirby? And one of the things I've written about in a little booklet on a biblical view on artificial intelligence is a whole section there, because this isn't the first time people have been thinking about this. There was a book came out years ago, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods, the Looming Spiritual Crisis and Artificial Intelligence and the rest. And then there are all sorts of other individuals that have commented on the potential dangers of it. There are various petitions that have come out there. But from a Christian point of view, let's talk about a couple of key issues. First of all, that human beings are created in God's image. We see that in Genesis 1. We see that in Psalm 139 and a variety of other passages. And so we have been given dominion and stewardship over the creation. We see that in Genesis 1.28 and in Colossians 1.16 and other passages. And so any time a technology is going to usurp or subvert that stewardship responsibility, I think we have concerns. If I could move to a different area, genetic engineering, we have the ability to actually use genetics to treat and cure genetic diseases resulting from the fall. That's very different than using genetic engineering to create a new race of human beings, you know, or in a sense, uh, rewriting the fifth and sixth days of creation. Same thing is here. We have technology. We should be able to use technology, and computer technology can certainly help us collect lots of data. But also, it is important to recognize that we cannot turn over to computers or inanimate objects our own moral responsibility. God holds us responsible for the decisions we make. And I think you see this in Romans 1. You see it in Romans 2 and Galatians 5 and other passages. So it does seem to me that we should recognize that these are tools. And so while we may value the fact that this has allowed us to collect massive amounts of data and thus maybe make even more intelligent decisions with less bias, At the same time, we recognize that God is still going to hold us responsible for the moral decisions we make based upon all of those facts and pieces of information. And that all takes us to an email we received and wanted to share with you from Pastor Robert Roper. He wrote, last week, you guys did a short segment on the AI Bible. I found it to be of interest. So uh, I've been saying this to the congregation, and uh, on Sunday night for a fun time, I put the AI Bible on the screen. I asked it questions from the congregation. I explained to them some of the limitations. 
Well, we found some very disturbing trends. If it does not find an answer in the Bible, it searches the Internet. If the Bible would potentially condemn some sort of behavior, the AI Bible will soften it and make it not our place to judge. We asked, for example, Moses, if the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. The AI Bible gave a very soft answer about affirming and accepting everyone. So we led it to the scriptures that Moses wrote and asked, what about Leviticus 20 verse 14? The AI Bible immediately corrected us and said, oh, you mean Leviticus 20 verse 13, not 2014, and then went on to speak of love and acceptance and forgiveness. We asked King David, are there any homosexuals in the Old Testament, thinking it might take us to the story of Sodom? The answer was shocking. Yes, in the Old Testament, there are references to same-sex relationships, particularly the story of David and Jonathan. Anyway, I thought you may be interested in our experience. So, Kirby, what is your response to this letter and Pastor Robert Roper's experience? And again, you used some examples on the issue of homosexuality. And again, I have a book that I came out with years ago on what's called homosexual theology. And if what you're putting into the computer, if the data it's pulling from, you have a lot of gay affirming theologians in various liberal churches and things of that nature, which want to rewrite uh, the discussions about uh, Genesis 19 and Leviticus 18 and 20 and Romans 1 and other passages. And so one of the things, John, I learned a long time ago when I put myself through graduate school programming computers is an old phrase, Geigo, garbage in, garbage out. If indeed what you have the computer doing is not pulling from God's Word, but pulling from anything out there, even things like Wikipedia, I think we've all tried to tell our students, don't use Wikipedia as your source for some of that information. You're going to have the wrong data coming in, and then you're going to get the wrong conclusions coming out. And that's exactly what is the case. And more recently, many people have probably seen that there was a trans-affirming Bible verse that came from GDP, where again, uh, it was uh, making up a hypothetical story between Jesus and a person, or a woman in this case, that uh, said she was actually separated between body and spirit. Her spirit said that she was a man, but her body said she was a woman, and you get all sorts of really kind of bizarre, non-biblical ideas coming from the AI Bible as it relates to the possibility of how Jesus would respond to trans people. So I think we have to recognize that the technology is worthwhile and useful, but again, garbage in, garbage out. If you pull in things other than God's Word into that computer, you're going to get a softening of some of the very explicit biblical commands, and it's going to be important for us to begin to evaluate some of those comments and some of those answers with a great deal of discernment. His editorials have appeared in the Dallas Morning News, the Miami Herald, the San Jose Mercury, and the Houston Post. Kirby Anderson is the president of Probe Ministries, joining us today on The Land and the Book. Kirby, how can Christians equip themselves to be more discerning, as the Scripture says, wise as serpents but harmless as doves? Well, first of all, spend your time in God's Word. Uh, You know the whole story that we've all told many times before, that when they teach people in secret service about counterfeiting, they don't show them counterfeit bills first. They show them the real one. And once you understand what a real dollar bill, $10 bill, $20 bill, $50 bill, $100 bill looks like, 
then you can very easily spot the counterfeit. And it seems to me that at a time when more of us have Bibles than ever before, John, I think the sad reality is we're not reading our Bibles. So it's important for us to go back and spend time in God's Word. But as I mentioned just a minute ago, one of the things we've been trying to make available are various booklets and resources, and I know you will do that as well on your program, so that uh, when you do encounter a new issue, and artificial intelligence is one of those new issues, and people talking about transhumanism and all sorts of things, you might say, well, I would like to read enough about that so at least I can give a cogent answer to that. But I think the first step and the most important step is for Christians to get back to reading their Bibles, because I think that will give you a great deal of wisdom and discernment, and we're going to need that more and more here in the 21st century. You've suggested that our technology is outpacing our ethics. What next? How do we, how do we live in that light? Well, again, that's why we certainly need to encourage individuals, maybe especially young people listening right now, uh, to go into these fields of endeavor. There are decisions being made, for example, in genetic engineering, and I would want to have Christians going into those fields of biotech, making wise decisions, and maybe even testifying in front of Congress or state legislatures in that regard. Same thing with artificial intelligence. If there are young people listening right now that have interest in computers and computer technology, we need Christians in those fields so that, number one, they can be influencing in a positive way some of those decisions and also then advocating for wise decisions that might be made in the government sphere. So, again, this is why I think we recognize that just as it is important to have individuals as missionaries going to other parts of the world to share the gospel, I hope some people that are listening here, especially young people, will consider that it might be a mission field to go into journalism, to go into biotech, to go into computers, all these places right now which do not have as much Christian light. Let's go in there and light some lamps rather than curse the darkness. Thanks, Kirby. Kirby Anderson of Probe joining us today for a look at the AI Bible and other concerns, a link to his website at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Hope to have you back on the program, Kirby. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. All right, have a great day. Hey, Charlie's back, and I'm looking forward to our segment where we get to open up his Bible, take a look at your questions. It's next on The Land and the Book. As human beings, we're just plain curious. That's how God made us. And that curiosity doesn't somehow sit on the shelf once we take the Bible off the shelf. No, we're just as curious or more so. The only question about our questions is, what do we do with them? <laughs> well, a good place to send yours is The Land and the Book. If you'll email us, Dr. Charlie Dyer will give your question a look and give you a personalized reply in a few days as his time is available. Maybe he's traveling once in a while, but he'll get back to you. And then we'll use that question, perhaps, in a future broadcast here of The Land and the Book. That said, Charlie, it's that time of year again, the biblical fall feasts, the holy days are upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people, how they play a role in God's plan for the future, and why they matter for us as believers. That's right, John. That's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feasts. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. 
you'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. To sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio logo there to sign up. Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. We're going to kick off our Q&A segment today with three questions asked by a homeschooler. Uh, Natalie says, we're a homeschool family in Texas, and this summer during our family Bible time, my 13-year-old daughter approached me with some questions I wasn't sure how to answer. So let's dig into these, starting with number one. If God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that Lucifer would be cast out of heaven for pride and ruin his beautiful world, why did God create him in the first place? Yeah, and I can see why it was somewhat difficult to answer because the Bible doesn't give us a direct response. But I do think there are two things that can help us understand why, at least a little. One is theological, and the other, I'll say, is biblical. Now, theologically, we know God did everything to display his glory. Had he created a perfect world where neither angels nor humans could ever have free will or exercise choice, well, then the universe would have been little more than like a cosmic version of God playing with dolls. We would have been just robots, incapable of making a choice to disobey or to obey. Of all the ways God could have constructed the universe, he made it so Satan and the other angels would have a one-time choice to choose to obey or rebel, and he designed humanity in a way that allowed us to sin, but also provided us with a pathway to redemption. In fact, I love 1 Peter 1, 19-20. It says Jesus was chosen to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Uh, in other words, God designed the plan of salvation for humanity, which required the death of his son before he even created humanity. Uh, and Ephesians 1, we're also told the role displayed by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in that work. And in each section, Paul says it was done to the praise of his glory. Uh, so while we might not understand all of it or fully understand it, I, I think theologically, God created angels and humans as he did because it was the plan that displayed his glory in the greatest possible way. Now, biblically, let me add just a little bit more. I do think there's one other possible reason. I don't believe God forced Satan to sin. Rather, he created Satan as a perfect angelic being. Satan later chose to rebel against God, and it was all part of God's ultimate plan, but we just need to make sure we don't assume God somehow created evil. Now, I say that because of the careful way God describes Satan's fall in Ezekiel 28:15. He says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. God created Satan without sin. Satan chose to rebel against God, and that's when wickedness was found in him. All right, here's a second question from this uh, homeschooler. If Lucifer slash Satan was allowed into the Garden of Eden, wouldn't that have already broken paradise since his very presence was evil? How can we say that sin entered the world through Adam if Satan was banished from heaven for sinning and then brought that sin into God's perfect garden? Well, we do know angels were created before the creation of the world. In Job 38, 7, God describes creation as a time, he says, when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Now, those two phrases are parallel. So the morning stars there is a poetic description of the angels. But my point is, the angels were rejoicing at the creation of the world, which means they existed prior to its creation. Uh, Satan's fall and expulsion from the inner courts of heaven, that passage in Ezekiel 28 I mentioned earlier, uh, must have also taken place prior to the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2 was perfect because God himself said at the end of each day that it was good. 
Now, I see Satan's appearance in the garden, well, being similar to his appearance in heaven uh, when he appeared before God in Job 1 and 2. Even though he was permitted to uh, be there, it was in a limited and restricted way. He was permitted to tempt Eve, but he wasn't allowed to physically attack or mar what God had created. That came about because of humanity's sin, which is why the Bible says sin and death entered the world through the actions of Adam and Eve. All right, a third question from our 13-year-old homeschooler. In the future, in the new earth, will it be possible for a different angel to try to rise up against God, maybe observing what Satan did wrong and wanting to try a different tactic? If paradise was lost once, how do we know it won't be lost again? I believe there was only that one-time opportunity for angels to choose between following God or following Satan. Uh, The imagery from uh, Revelation 12, where the dragon is said to have swept away a third of the stars of heaven, suggests about a third of the angelic host must have followed Satan in that initial revolt. Later in that same chapter, we're told about a future battle between the angels loyal to God, led by Michael, and those who follow Satan. Now, at that point, Satan and his forces lose all access to heaven and are confined to the earth. A key passage, though, to me in all of this is 1 Peter 1.12. Peter talks about the gospel, and he adds a cryptic sentence. He says, even the angels long to look into these things. I believe that the gospel and God's program of redemption for humanity are things which angels didn't fully comprehend and still don't fully comprehend because there was never a plan for redemption for angels. At one point in the past, they had to make a decision that forever sealed their destiny. One last point I think can apply to this question. In Hebrews 12, we're told about the new Jerusalem. It says it's the city of the living God, and it's inhabited by Old Testament saints, the church, and thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Uh, in Revelation 21:27, God vows nothing impure will ever enter the new Jerusalem. Since angels are there, uh, that suggests to me that as God constructed it all, they will never ever sin or rebel as they're part of that city. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. Your questions are welcome anytime. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Fred and Renette listen to The Land of the Book every week. They say they absolutely love the program. Their question, why are women not allowed or discouraged from becoming pastors? Well, I need to start by saying the Bible doesn't limit the distribution of spiritual gifts by gender. You know, men and women can possess, uh, for example, the gift of teaching or administration. Now, I've worked in churches where spiritually gifted women serve in a variety of ministries and administrative roles. In Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos into their home and taught him the Word of God, and the text makes it clear that both were involved in the instruction. And In fact, by listing Priscilla first, some believe she may have taken the lead in that instruction. But to answer the question directly now, I do believe the Bible limits the role of elder to men. In 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, Paul provides God's qualifications for an elder. And one of those qualifications is to be the husband of one wife. Literally, it says a one-woman man. In these statements, the Bible limits the role of elder or senior pastor or lead pastor or whatever title is used in different churches to describe that individual leading the church and providing authoritative teaching. Uh, Well, it limits it to men. Now, perhaps the bigger question, though, is whether or not God has the right to set limits on those who serve his church. And I believe he does. In Israel, God limited the office of priest to descendants of Aaron, who was from the tribe of Levi. Now, there were many good and godly men and women from other tribes, but that didn't qualify them to serve as priests. God set limitations there, and I think he's done the same within the local church. And our real question is, do we allow God to set the limits and then follow what he set up? 
Todd says, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 are among my favorites in all of Scripture. Can you tell me a little bit about their connection to the historical context and perhaps suggest a few implications for our lives today? Yeah, in the larger context, Jeremiah 4 through 25 are a series of, of messages, warnings and judgments against Judah. And the third of those messages, it's chapter 7 to 10, focus on the theme of false religion and its punishment. It begins with a sermon preached in the temple that focuses on false religion. And it's within that context that we find those particular verses. What I love about those verses is that Jeremiah contrasts the three things humanity boasts about with the three that matter most to God. He says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man his strength or the rich man his riches. So uh, we admire the scholar, we admire the athlete, we admire the wealthy. But in contrast, he says, we ought to focus on what matters to God. Uh, And the words are kindness, literally hesed, loyal love, and justice, doing what's right, and righteousness, conforming to God's moral standards. And uh, what I love is those same issues are not only true in Jeremiah's day, they're also true for us today. Man, we have covered a lot of territory today. Could be you'd like to hear it all again. And by the way, we're not done yet. Charlie's devotional is next. But if in particular some of these questions had you saying, aha, you can hear them again when you visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. A podcast is there. You can enjoy yourself or share with friends at thelandandthebook.org. Again, Charlie's devotional is coming up next. you're a regular listener to The Land and the Book, you probably have a favorite segment. So what's yours? For many, it's this segment, our fourth. Hi, I'm John Geiger, joined by our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. It's a devotional he's planning. And Charlie, last week, let's see, we were in Jordan. This week, you're taking us to Mount Sinai as we look at Yom Kippur. I'm looking forward to that devotional, but uh, are you going to help us figure out what Yom Kippur is really all about? Well, I hope so, John. (laughs) I think you will. You have a way of uh, taking these subjects that can be complex and making them pretty simple, and I love how you apply them to our lives. Hey, what do you say we pause right now and listen to uh, a testimony from somebody who's been to Israel and uh, now shares this with you and me? I'm calling about my experience in the Holy Land. The first time I went, I flew into Jordan and my first sight of the Holy Land was from Mount Nebo, where Moses saw the land. And it was totally amazing. You could look off to the north and see the Sea of Galilee. You could look down to the south and see the Dead Sea and the Jordan River connecting them. It was absolutely beautiful. We drove down, and as we entered into Israel, the Lord gave us a beautiful rainbow. The second time I went, I was blessed to be able to work with archaeologists at the Temple Mount sifting site, where you actually got to sift through soil from Mount Zion, and it was absolutely amazing. I just encourage everyone to go. It will change your life, and it will bring you closer to the Lord. All right, Charlie, we're looking for some help here on Yom Kippur. What can you tell us? Well, John, this coming Sunday evening marks the beginning of Yom Kippur, the holiest day in Judaism. To imagine what that day was like, head with me to the base of Mount Sinai. The tabernacle was set up just a few months ago. We're here as Israel begins to celebrate Yom Kippur for the very first time. 
Now, God provided general instructions for the day in Leviticus 16. Now, perhaps these words were read aloud to remind the people what was to take place. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It's a lasting ordinance. The priest is to make atonement. He's to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of Israel. Now, did you catch the repetition? Three times God stressed that this was a lasting ordinance. Four times he said the purpose was to make atonement. And then he called it a Sabbath of rest, telling them to deny themselves in the sense of both not working and fasting. The day was vitally important because it was the one day each year when atonement was to be made for the sins of the Israelites. The actual events on the Day of Atonement were complex, and as we stand here outside the tabernacle, we're not able to see all the details, though God did explain what would take place. Aaron the high priest first initially bathes with water before putting on the high priestly garments. He then offers a bull on the altar to atone for his sin and that of his household. Entering the holy place, he takes a censer of burning coals and places incense on it. Sliding the smoking incense behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, Aaron then enters the Holy of Holies and sprinkles some of the blood from the bull before the mercy seat to atone for his sin. Returning outside the tent, Aaron then slaughters a goat to be offered as a sin offering for the people. He takes some of its blood back into the tent and sprinkles it before the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies to atone for the people's sin. All this time, no other priests are allowed inside the tent of meeting. Aaron must perform all of this alone. He then sprinkles blood on the incense altar and the altar of burnt offering to cleanse them as well. Aaron then returns to the entrance of the tabernacle and takes a second goat, often called the scapegoat. He lays his hands on this goat and confesses the sins of the people. A specially appointed individual then leads that goat out into the wilderness, symbolizing it carrying away the sins of the people. Finally, Aaron returns inside the tent and removes the high priestly garments and puts on his other garments. After symbolically washing himself again, he returns to the courtyard to offer two additional burnt offerings, one for himself and one for the people. Now, before we turn from this original tabernacle in the wilderness to head home, I want you to remember one thing. This elaborate ritual had to be repeated every year, and that's what makes the work of Jesus so unique. The earthly high priest had to always offer a sacrifice for his own sin before he could intercede on behalf of the people, and he was required to offer these sacrifices annually. But instead of ministering in the physical tabernacle, which was an earthly copy of the heavenly reality, the writer of Hebrews says Christ entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. And Christ didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sin like the earthly high priest. Instead, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Nor did his sacrifice have to be repeated. Instead, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And just as the people would wait expectantly for the high priest to come from the tabernacle fully cleansed, so Jesus will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In the tabernacle, 
Aaron was the mediator of the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant was perfect because it reflected the glory and perfection of God. But it created a major problem by pointing out God's righteous standards, which we can never meet. It was a spotlight that revealed our own sinfulness. We were unable to achieve God's holy standard, and God, to be fair and just, has to judge sin. But that's why the writer of Hebrews also says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The new covenant, inaugurated in his blood that was shed at Calvary, paid the eternal penalty for our sin. And the indwelling Holy Spirit, also promised as part of the new covenant, provided a divine enablement for us to live in a way that allows us to receive God's blessing. Last week, I mentioned that the fall festivals are prophetic, pointing toward the second coming of Christ. The Feast of Trumpets pointed toward God's resumption of his program with Israel, which follows the removal of the church from earth. The Day of Atonement points toward the time of Christ's second coming, when he will appear from heaven, just as Aaron appeared to the people following the offering of the sacrifices on that day. It's no accident that the prophet Zechariah describes Jesus' return as a time when the Jewish people will turn to him in repentance and receive forgiveness of sin. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. That will be the ultimate day of atonement when the great high priest will appear and finally be recognized for who he really is. And then the cleansing from sin will be complete. The Apostle Paul described the event this way in Romans 11:26 and 27. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. But how about you? The day of atonement is almost upon us. Have you come to the point where you recognize the reality of your sinfulness before God? You're unable to be good enough or to do enough to ever reach God on your own. And that's why he sent his one and only son to earth to pay the penalty for your sin. Jesus is the ultimate great high priest who offered himself in your place. The most significant question right now is this. Have you placed your trust for eternal life in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? You don't know what tomorrow holds, so this is a decision you really need to make today. And, my friend, it's a decision that has eternal consequences. Thank you, Charlie. You know, there's a great resource at our website if you'd like to know Jesus personally right now that you can click. It's called How to Know Christ, and you'll find it at thelandandthebook.org. Look up toward the top in the right-hand corner. You can't miss it, How to Know Christ. There are some videos there, some resources you can download for free that'll tell you everything you need to know at thelandandthebook.org. Click on How to Know Christ. Well, our time is gone, but as always, Charlie, it's been fun hanging out with you, hanging out with our listeners, and we'll do it all again next week. I'm John Geiger. See you then for more of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.